Good morning. Uh, one of the interesting aspects of the past 12 months is that we've kind of gone from living in a country where we were pretty laid back and we kind of just assumed we could get on with our lives and do whatever we wanted to, uh, to living in a context where basically we're incredibly restricted. We've got state governments and health officers who tell us what we can and can't do. Uh, and if people step out of line, they're shamed. And we can all think of the examples as being one in the past week, which I don't need to dwell on in terms of the detail. It's a kind of a really radical shift in the way we live, isn't it? The state premiers have become kind of like modern-day Old Testament prophets thundering, thundering forth and issuing edicts and instructions and telling us what we can and can't do. Well, sin, failure, judgment, condemnation, right and wrong have all come into very sharp focus. Today we look at what is for many of us one of our favourite psalms. And many of the phrases in Psalms, David's Psalm 51 are incredibly familiar to us and we can all connect with them. The interesting thing about this is the context for Psalm 51 is a context of gross sin, not just kind of bad sins that we're all involved in. Uh, the header of the psalm kind of puts it this way. For the director of music, a psalm of David, uh, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do we relate to it or is it because of that? This is our story as well. We've kind of been involved in something gross. Well, I mean, maybe that's happened to most of us perhaps sometime at some point in our lives and maybe some people more particularly than others. But I think kind of generally think that we're more likely to relate to it because it captures the ideal of how we're meant to respond to God and all of us need to do that. From time to time, we need to come before him to seek his forgiveness, restoration and renewal. And that's got with what we have here in this magnificent psalm. The story of David and Bathsheba is a sordid and tragic tale. You can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And it illustrates how one action can lead to many unhappy consequences. It highlights that David has serious character flaws and has that as a king was open to misusing his immense power for his own particular benefit, and he also went to seek to protect himself from the consequences of his action because he was in a position to do that. Either way, his actions had big implications, not just for himself and for the rest of his life, but for many people because of the tragic nature of what happened. Well, all sorts of adages do come to mind. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and where power corrupts, it corrupts absolutely perhaps that's what we're dealing with here david the king of israel was at home in his palace he should have been out fighting with his armies because it says at the beginning it was a season when they went to war so presumably it was spring coming into summer and for reasons that aren't explained he chooses to stay home when he would have ordinarily been out in the battlefield while at home he spies from his palace window uh, the beautiful Bathsheba having a bath uh, in the public bathing area, uh, which he could see from his window. He has her brought to his rooms, private quarters. Uh, he sleeps with her, and later he discovers that she's pregnant, or she lets him know that she's preg pregnant. Uh, both the, the, There's two sins here that David knowingly commits, both adultery, but as well as that, it says in the passage that Bathsheba uh, was having was the time of her impurity. In other words, she was having her period. Uh, and under Jewish law, you didn't sleep with someone during that period. David had neglected his duties and was vulnerable to temptation. Whether this was all premeditated, 
We don't know. The situation gets worse. David Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant and David springs into action and has her husband Uriah summoned back from the battle lines. Uriah, we're told in the text, is an upright man and chooses not to sleep with his wife because he was a man of duty and if his own soldiers weren't back being able to have conjugal rights then he wasn't going to exercise the same freedom and opportunity. So we're told David gets frustrated, he gets Uriah drunk in the hope that yet again he would lay his, with his wife. And again, again, he doesn't do as he would expect. Uh, he sleeps in the servants' quarters. David is now incredibly desperate, so he organises for Uriah to be put in the front line of the battle, knowing what will happen as a consequence. The story doesn't end there. David is confronted by Nathan the prophet in chapter 12, and his sins are denounced. Now, many leaders face this situation. The Bible's full of flawed people. The church has many flawed leaders. Often they will be more concerned about their own reputation than about their actions and its consequences. At present, it seems that virtually every minister you talk to is listening to a podcast coming out of Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It tells the story of the meteoric rise of Mark Driscoll and the Mars Hill Church in Seattle in the 1990s, and it's even more spectacular implosion a decade or so later. As the series suggests, Driscoll was remarkably gifted, yet he had an undeveloped character. And this impacted and harmed many people. David, when confronted, responds plainly. In chapter 12, verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't play down his sin, nor does he seek to deflect blame onto others. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. It's a classic. And as I have said, has been incredibly important for most of us if we're reading the scriptures at some point in our journey. But as a general rule, it's a psalm that many of us love to come back to. David's sin does raise many questions for each of us. David was, was a king. He was the Lord's anointed. Yet he had knowingly committed adultery and then worked hard to cover up his sin. This involved him in organising to have a person murdered. If David were king today, would he get a working with children check? Is a very interesting question. Now most of us would have done, and most of us, all of us perhaps, have done terrible things, yet it's unlikely any of us have done something like David did. In spite of that, when we fail and mess up, it usually impacts others profoundly. So how do we come before God to confess? And will God forgive us? Will we still be punished? And what about the people who have been wronged? How does God balance justice and mercy? Is God only interested in big sins and not little ones? Well, David himself comes to the point, I have sinned. That has to be the starting point. You'll notice he doesn't seek to justify himself. I was really tired or uh, you know, I didn't really fully know what I was doing or I didn't think about the consequences. It was just a one-off, etc., etc. I think this is an important point. There may be extenuating circumstances for all of us. There usually are. But generally speaking, we all seek to justify ourselves. When we do this, we are in effect saying that we don't trust God's justice and God's justification. All of us have to acknowledge that we deserve to be punished and that our only hope is the loving mercy of God. We are only able to be confident of this because we know that our sins were laid upon another and that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus, Jesus, David came to know God's forgiveness, but as the reading we have in chapter 12 points out, he still suffered the terrible consequences of his actions. The child who was born to Bathsheba dies, and the words of the prophet Nathan were reflected in the outworking of the rest of his life. Today we're going to respond to the psalm in small sections, 
and I'm going to allow time for personal reflection. You'll see the words of the psalm on the screen if you're seeing this live in church, and if you're watching this from home, then if you can get your Bibles out and get to Psalm 51, we'll blow through it bit by bit uh, and use it as a basis for our own prayer and reflection. Well, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In starting off, David acknowledges the basis on which he is able to come before God and find forgiveness. It is because of God's unfailing love, his remarkable compassion. God loves in a way that no other does. It isn't fickle or variable depending on the circumstances. And in spite of us and our actions, God's love is unfailing and his compassion has no bounds. David can't take away his actions, nor does he avoid the consequences. But he does ask God to blot them out. He asks to be washed clean and to be cleansed of his guilt and his failure. So let's stop for a moment and reflect and pray on those first two verses. In verses 3 to 4, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In this next section, David captures the challenge we all face. We sin, we confess, God forgives and blots it out, but we still have it before our mind's eye and we live with our guilt and our sense of failure. As David reflects on this, he realises that he can't seek to justify himself or his actions. He sinned against others, but ultimately he was also sinning against God and he was right to be judged for his actions. So again, let's stop and reflect and pray. In verses 5 and 6, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. One of the phenomena of our age is a constant sense of disappointment that people aren't measuring up to the ideals that we have for each other. Just think of how many women feel at present, or our First Nations friends and brothers and sisters, or children who have been abused at home or elsewhere. The secular vision would appear to be that we should live lives of mutual respect and we should have a genuinely inclusive community. And sadly, that ideal is under constant assault. Well, a biblical vision of humankind is balanced. On the one hand, we, re we believe that every person is made in God's image and that therefore every person is imbued with great dignity and worth. And we also believe that because they're made in God's image, that every person is both gifted and imbued with great qualities and are capable of doing great good. Yet at the same time, we acknowledge we are deeply flawed. All of us are people who are born in sin and therefore have a sinful nature. We aren't blank sheets. Now, we all know that when babies are born, they're as innocent, they look as innocent as the dove, but we also know that it doesn't take that long for them to assert their independence and their willfulness. 
We're not all bad, but we're not all good. We're this curious mix of good and evil. And all of us have the potential to do great things, amazing things, incredible things. And yet we also have the potential to do great harm. Most of us who are watching this are probably older, not all, but most. And we know that we're flawed because as you get older, it becomes more sort of obvious what your flaws and failings are. Most of us have done things that we regret. And all of us are aware of the impact of our actions on others. So again, let's each stop and reflect and pray. In verses 7 to 9, David says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David thinks at this point about the sprinkling of the blood in the temple, the cleansing with hyssop and the being washed clean because of the sacrificial actions that took place through the temple sacrifices. Well, we ourselves are in a far better position than David. We think of the blood shed and the body broken. We think about this not as a recurring, and this is a recurring thing that is actually available to us again and again through the one action of the one person, Jesus Christ. For David, he had to come back to the temple again and again uh, to have his sins cleansed and washed free and washed anew. Christ's death was sufficient for the sins of the whole world and also sufficient for all of your sins and my sins. Well, does God forgive and forget our sins? Does it somehow mean the consequences of our sins are minimised? Uh, it's a recurring kind of thing, actually, when something really heinous happens in our community, that there are cries for the person to be condemned for life uh, because they should never be forgiven for what they've done. Well, justification, which is one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, means that God treats us as we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness and cleansing. Yet God in Jesus Christ is able to not look on you and your sinfulness, but to look upon Jesus Christ and his perfection and his blood which was shed in his sacrificial death. And in that way, in God's eyes, we're seen as if we've never sinned. It's just, as they say, as if we've never sinned. Well, when we realise, and, and we, when we can accept this, as David says, we can know the joy and freedom that he talks about. So let's stop and reflect and pray. In verses 10 and 11, David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David desperately wants to make a fresh start and to have a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. For him to know that he, this, he needs to know God's presence and to experience afresh the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Because it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can live in a new way. God doesn't invite us to live new lives in new ways and to live differently, uh, knowing our disposition to sin, without blessing us with the Holy Spirit to enable us to live in a new way to his glory. So we actually ought to call upon that Spirit as he does that the Spirit would enable us to make a fresh start and to live in a new way to the blessing of others and the blessing of God in our relationship with him. So let's each stop and reflect and pray.
Well, in verses 12 to 14, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Saviour and my tongue will sing your righteous, of your righteousness. Well, it is remarkable, isn't it, that David, as the king, had committed these heinous sins and actions, and then, in a sense, he hadn't suffered the punishment of death or being expelled from his office or role. God forgives him, restores him, and enables him to go on to be one of the great teachers of the faith. After all, he wrote many of the Psalms, and the one that they were now reflecting on 2,000 years later. Well, David has prayed that God would restore the joy of his salvation and that God would grant him a willing spirit and sustain him. And God has actually blessed and honoured that because he did go on to teach transgressors of your ways because of what he'd experienced and learnt and knew. Uh, and we ourselves are in a similar position. If we know the forgiveness of God and the blessing and freedom that comes from that and we have a renewed spirit, then God means that he can use us for the blessing of others who need a similar experience of liberation and freedom. So let's each stop and reflect and pray. To finish off the psalm in verses 15 to 17, David says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, O God, will not despise. Well, finally, David acknowledges that he's guilty of blood being shed. He also acknowledges that God doesn't delight in sacrifices if it isn't reflected in a changed heart and life. The sacrifices in themselves weren't just some mechanical action that you went through in order to get things sort of sorted out. None of this prayer somehow justifies David's poor actions. He will go on for years to suffer the consequences of his poor choices and the gross sins he's committed. But nevertheless, he wants to be able to live a life where he's got a broken spirit, a contrite heart, and one that wants to please God. Well, as the consequence of praying and seeking God's forgiveness, and as we confess and accept that, that forgiveness, we ought to be hoping and praying that God will bless us with a changed heart and we'll be seeking to live lives that are different as a consequence. Well, for each of us today, Psalm 51 can be and should be an important psalm. If you need to confess, you may want to use it as a basis for your own prayer. And if you've already confessed and know God's forgiveness but are still racked with a sense of guilt, then go back to it and pray that God would help you to be reassured yet again of his cleansing love and forgiveness, of the fact that through Christ that sin has been blotted out and removed, and that God would bless you with the Holy Spirit to enable you to live in a new way, in spite of the tension and challenge that it may, it may be involved uh, as a consequences of your own actions in the past. These aren't easy things to do, uh, easy things to say, but not necessarily easy things to do. So may God encourage us through his word, and enable us to live in a new way to his glory. Amen.